Hello and welcome to the Weekend Booktopian, the podcast where a few booktopians get together each week to talk book news, share what they've been reading lately, and then face off in a deathly round of book trivia that we like to call book fight. Uh, I'm Olivia Frico, Senior Content Producer and Editor of the Booktopian blog, and I'm delighted to be your host this week. Joining me today is Ashley Berry, our Campaigns Coordinator. Hi, Ash. Hey, Liv. Uh, Nick Vasiliev, our Social Media Specialist. Hey, Liv. Hi. And finally, we've got Scott Whitmont, our Business Development and Relationship Manager extraordinaire. Hi, Scott. Oh, thank you. Hello, Liv. Hi, everyone. Oh, man. It's Friday afternoon, finally. How are we all feeling? How are we all doing? Are we ready to talk book news? Are we ready to talk books? Yes, we're back yeah, in the swing. We say, it's still January, so we can say Happy New Year, but we're back in the swing of it and back into the 2021 book. So it's all very exciting, even if it's a little hot today. <laughs> it is quite warm. <laughs> all right, so on to the news. Um, I will say it's been a quiet one for book news, but a pretty big week for news at large. So let's get right into it. Um, just yesterday, we saw the inauguration of the 46th President of the United States, uh, President Joe Biden, and his Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, ceremony went off without a hitch, to the relief of, I think, everyone watching. Uh, but the star who stole the show was, in fact, a 23-year-old Black poet named Amanda Gorman. Uh, Gorman recited a poem that she wrote called The Hill We Climb, which she finished writing after the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. And people online just can't stop talking about it, just talking about how amazing it is and how beautifully she spoke. Um, she's actually the youngest poet in US history to perform at an inauguration. And her work has put poetry in the international spotlight in a way that we don't see a lot of the time. Um, I watched her performance. I thought she was incredible. Um, has anyone else seen it? And what are our thoughts? Yeah, I saw it. There were a few parts that really jumped out at me. I remember she said, that democracy can be periodically delayed, but not permanently defeated. I thought that was a wonderful line and she had a mm. lot of them. And she reminded me of uh, a um, another performance uh, poet that we've seen a lot around the scene in Australia and that's Kate Tempest. Uh, she, mm. I think she's English, but she's been here many times. And she's also very young and dynamic with this, mm. this sort of poems that really make you think and really inspire and give you hope for the future of, of poetry and performance and literature. Mm. So I, I thought of Kate Tempest when I watched her, but it was very impressive uh, performance. The, the Hill We Climb, it was called, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, I believe Kate... Um, goes by K now, and I think um, they're non-binary. Um, but yeah, I do oh, agree. Um, I didn't know that. That kind of performance, yeah, yeah. Well, that kind of performance poetry is really taking off. Um, and uh, what what did um, what did everyone else think? Well, it's just fantastic to actually just see poetry on a stage of that size. Um, I think you know these days many people make uh, the assumption that. And I think it's also maybe a fact that people don't appreciate poetry like they used to anymore. Um, I think, you know, you, you go back, you know, to the, you know, a couple, nearly 100, 200 years ago, there were professional poets, like similar to, to, um, to actual professional authors. And obviously I don't think people actually come to appreciate poetry in as much a fashion the, uh, these days, but the truth is it's incredibly, you know, it is an incredibly dynamic and versatile art form. And it was just so wonderful to actually just see it there to actually have it on a stage that big um and you know hopefully it actually leads to a resurgence in poetry because there's so many fantastic wonderful poets out there um yeah, in this day and age 
Well, it's something that's just grown in recent years in terms of presidential inaugurations, isn't it? It's really since uh, uh, since Clinton that uh, they've had a poet at almost every inauguration, not not at Trump's, but at the two Clintons and the two Obamas, uh, a poet, uh, you know, giving an oration at the inauguration to inspire. Mm. I think JFK had one years ago, also back in 61. But um, it's basically been since since the 90s that this seems to become be becoming a tradition. And as you said, Nick, when it's well performed, you know, poetry can be totally inspiring and not daunting like some people think it is. Mm. Yeah, well, um, if you're one of those people at home that also loved um, Amanda Gorman's uh, recitation, you'll be happy to know that she's due to release, um, I think Penguin in America are releasing it as a separate book, just as a small binding. And then she's also got a picture book out in September called Change Sings, a children's anthem, uh, as well as a poetry collection. Uh, so Amanda's not going away anytime soon, which is awesome. She's um, an impressive individual. She, she got a scholarship to Harvard. Mm. And, you know, she's been an activist and for a 23 year old, she's achieved more than what many people do <laughs> at three times that age. Yeah, so cool. All right, so moving on. Uh, if you're one of the many ardent fans of the Netflix TV, TV adaptation of Bridgerton, you're in luck because a second season has just been confirmed. <laughs> I think we're all pretty big fans of the show, which is like, I'd say it's Jane Austen, Austen's Emma meets Gossip Girl. Um, <laughs> delicious to watch um, and we're going to get a second season. Um, the first season was based on The Duke and I which is the first book in Julia Quinn's series um, but I believe they're going to take on the second book which is called The Viscount Who Loved Me. Um, what do we, how do we feel about Bridgerton and its ongoing domination of the Netflix world and also the reading world? So happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I loved it. I, I didn't really know the books prior to the series and obviously just the hype of the series got me to watch it. I finished it a couple of days max. Um, from what I understand is is the next books, they're more about the other siblings. So now we've had, you know, mm -hmm. Daphne and the Duke, it moves on to her siblings, that's from what I understand. Yeah, I think it's going to move on to Anthony Bridgerton, who, um, yeah. as we know, is a hapless older brother. He gets himself into all kinds of scrapes. Um, and it's a, I think it's going to be about him trying to secure an heir to the Bridgerton line because he's the eldest. I love that. Yeah. Well, no, it's good. They, um, no, I was just going to say, it's just um, quite amazing what they did with, you know, um, I, I personally think relatively unknown book. I'm not really uh, a reader of romance novels. Um, and to get it so mainstream, I've just seen it absolutely everywhere now. Um, and it's, it's really impressive. I kind of just trust in whatever they can do for the next seasons. I'm not at all worried. I'm likely going to watch it. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't normally read romance either, but I'm curious to read one just to know how it compares, because I know that the, the director and producers of the TV series have taken their, their, own, their own slant on the books, uh, being one interested in history and always talking about history. Uh, I found it difficult at the beginning to accept the premise that, you know, there were black aristocrats in early 19th century England and Chinese aristocrats and that the queen was black or part black, uh, which of course is not true to history at all, but the directors made it this diverse racial uh, 
you know, a cast of all sorts of races in 19th century, early 19th century British aristocracy. So if you can accept that premise and stretch credulity, then I started to really enjoy it. But those who love and know history might have found that a bit difficult. But I also think that 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 slant on it is what makes it different to other, you know, Jane Austen type TV Mm -hmm. miniseries. It's something different with a 21st century slant and the costumes, which are clearly the Mm -hmm. materials and the bright colours are clearly not early 19th century dress materials. Mm -hmm. But uh, they get away with it and it's visually very impressive. And I always love TV series that make people go to books, whatever the books. And the fact that there are eight books in this series and and a few epilogues also, uh, and based on Booktopia's... uh, book sales already waiting for more stock from the publisher of these books a lot of people are saying oh let me read the books and anything that sends people to books to imagine themselves i think is a wonderful thing yeah Yeah, i think i counted six books um from the bridgerton series are in our top 10 best-selling books as of today there you go yeah i just it's interesting i just it's this is something that i find endlessly fascinating and it happens with every single time there's a series like this and I, I think it's fantastic that um you know a series like bridgerton if you're someone who might not be familiar with the books uh, might not be familiar with all of that history and all of that work that, that that julia has done with these books it's so fantastic to see people by extension of the series be turned onto that and the fact that yeah like you like you say we've six of our top 10 for the week are all books in this series additionally you know we leading on from that point the fact that the dry right now as well is mm. uh is a, is a top is in the top 10 as well with the off the back of the success of the movie um it's just so fantastic that when people actually check out another form of uh like whether it be in the visual medium that by extension they go and discover books um and in a new way and then hopefully discover a new genre mm. that they might not have previously if they hadn't been exposed to that before it's fantastic i'm sure yeah. julia quinn's very happy about it too it is interesting on the racial diverse cast racially diverse casting is that um there's a quite a strong tradition on the stage of cast of colorblind casting and it's funny that it's taken so long to get to tv um i think it's great and you you just yeah you hope that it just but like it'll be like a jarring brief moment where you go you think oh this person is a, is a is someone who you wouldn't expect to be a traditional color but then their acting will take over and you'll be swept up in it i mean we i mean we've seen it with with hamilton um having a racially diverse cast there and you barely even notice it, it because it's not important or even you know uh, i've written you know last year when harry potter and the cursed child um was <clears throat> was uh, was playing in in melbourne um I went and saw that, and Hermione was played by uh, an actress um, of, uh, like, she, uh, by a black actress, and you didn't even notice. Like, it was a brief moment where, because you 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 make the assumption, of course, that it is uh, that it's going to be someone similar to the performance that, for example, Emma Watson put in. But at the moment, the moment that you get that that you are there, and the actor just takes over, it becomes it's not important anymore. And I think that's wonderful. It's a good mentality that we need to persist with. Yeah, of course. But there is a difference between uh, historical accuracy of Harry Potter versus real history. Um, (laughs) And um, I I was bothered by it. I accepted it as an artistic, you know, you know, interpretation, but uh, yeah, it, it, it is hard if you're looking at history to accept things that you know just didn't happen. But as, as a piece of art, I really was very entertained. I love the series. I don't know, some historians have claimed that there's actually a possibility that 
Queen Charlotte has black heritage, which I think is what they're playing with in this show. Yeah. Um, anyway, we should move on. Um, <laughs> talked about Bridgerton for quite a long time, and it's not a Bridgerton podcast. As much fun as I think that would be. Um, so let's move on to the what we've been reading section of this wonderful podcast. Uh, so, Ash, why don't you kick us off? What have you been reading and loving lately? Uh, yeah, so... Um, obviously, January, New Year, New Me. Um, one of the key books I read in January is The Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon. Um, so this has been sitting on my shelf for quite a while. It's 800 pages. Um, it's been intimidating me. It's been staring me down um, for probably a good nine months now. Uh, I haven't quite been ready for it. But as I said, it's a new year. It was time for it. Um, and I am so glad I finally read it. So a little taster, a well divided, a queendom without an heir, an ancient enemy awakens. So this is a really expansive story, both in time and scale. It's a fantasy. Um, we explore, you know, this world, the various facets of the world, the society, the culture. It's a divided world um, politically and religiously. So we have quite a rich history to learn about this world and the law behind it. Um, the depth of the world building is amazing. I was firmly absorbed into this story. Um, and notably, it has a real focus on women protagonists. You know, a majority of the main cast of characters are really strong women um, who each have, you know, different beliefs and political alignments from different parts of this world whose paths bring them together at the end. Um, but my favourite part of the story, it's uh, dragons. Core concept is dragons. I love a good dragon <laughs> fantasy. Um, so I was super keen for this one. Um, so the story is about, you know, there was this ancient dragon who was all powerful and world ending, called the Nameless One, um, who was successfully banished a thousand years ago um, by two individuals welding, you know, certain magical elements um, to keep it vague. So, of course, um, this story takes place a thousand years later. So it's all about, you know, the characters understanding what, what is coming, you know, what they're on the brink of, what they need to do to save this world from this ancient evil that is just about to awaken. Um, so it is really an interesting fantasy, you know. They need to, like I mentioned, it's quite a divided world politically and religiously. Um, those two individuals I mentioned who banished this dragon are the root of modern day religion in part of the world. Um, whereas on the other part of the world, they uh, worship modern day dragons. You know, they, they see them as gods. It's, it's not black and white, there's different species. Um, and the impact of dragons, oh, I loved it. <laughs> Sorry, I could go on about good dragon fantasies. <laughs> it, it, it's um, a, a standalone, it's not part of a series. Yeah, I was going to say that's probably my second favourite thing. This is a self-contained um, standalone novel. So you don't need to worry about any cliffhangers. You don't need to worry about any sequels. You know, it's, it's all there. It's 800 pages, but it is well worth it. But also a really good thing is that it is so rich. You know, I can barely touch on the different regions of the world and the history of each and where this religious strand deviates to then have separate regions it's 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 rife for more stories and i believe the author um has said that she'd love to explore this world more but this particular story yeah it's a standalone in its own self 
that's quite refreshing and unusual for the fantasy genre, fantasy and sci-fi. Oh, you know, they tend to be really. all series. So it's kind of nice to know that you can, even if it's a, albeit a big book, you can just go grab one and be totally satisfied and not, as you said, left hanging to have a standalone. Yeah. That, that's nice for Every, a change. Is it quite fantasy. new? Is, uh, I think 2019, start of 2019 oh, okay. it came out. So okay. relatively new. Um, it was recommended to me uh, by a friend who loves fantasy. So um, mm. I jumped straight onto it. And, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you, Scott. My, the rest of my fantasy pile are all the first in a series. So I really need to work towards, you know, wanting to start a really thick book with about three or four thick books after it. Yeah, yeah this was a nice relief to, to see the end in sight. Well, you're preaching um, to the choir here. I'm a dragon lover as well, so always looked at that book and thought, oh, I don't know if I want to take it on, but you might have, may, may have just inspired me. Do it. I'm not sure if you can see this with my yeah, glare, but look at the cover. That cover is so cool. Oh, yeah. It's The dragon is shiny. <laughs> anyway. Imagine yeah, that, a shiny will, dragon. <laughs> you'd never see one. Um, no, I'm going to recommend this on to you, Liv. I'll pass the recommendation butterfly to you um, <laughs> and then we'll talk about it in depth because there is so much to uh, unpack with this book. Um, after I read a second book, guys, um, it was a huge contrast to that one, to that 800 pager. It's called This Is How You Lose the Time War, a tidy 198 pages. Um, it won the Hugo and Nebula Awards uh, 2020 for Best Novella. So um, to summarise, among the ashes of a dying world, an agent of the commandant finds a letter. It reads, burn before reading. Thus begins an unlikely correspondence between two rival agents hellbent on securing the best possible future for their warring factions. Now what began as a taunt, a battlefield boast, grows into something more, something epic, something romantic something that could change the past and the future. Um, so I had high expectations, obviously, going into this book. Uh, and I am very pleased to say I loved it. You know, it was a quicker read off the back of that more epic fantasy. Um, and it was really interesting, you know. It, it takes this bond between two beings who are enemies and it does become quite romantic and emotional. Um, but also the story itself is set in the strands of time. You know, they're jumping through key moments in history, up thread, down thread, because their, their agenda, they have opposing agendas, but their agenda is to make their future happen. So it's, it's a really interesting love story, kind of, in a really sci-fi setting. Um, highly recommend this. Once you get into it, once you understand the world, really enjoyable read. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Ash. Uh, we'll move on to you, Nick. What have you been reading and loving lately? Well, uh, in contrast uh, to Ash uh, with the New Year, New Me mentality, it's been New Year going back to old books and rereading them me uh, instead. Um, so I actually have been uh, retreading uh, re re some books that I... Um, in the past may not have uh, got or enjoyed as much as I should have and then revisiting them, actually finding a lot of enjoyment in them. Um, and the first book that I have uh, reread is Nobody Is Ever Missing um, by Catherine Lacey. 
Um, now, this was a book that we were encouraged to read at university um, during uh, our, when I was studying creative writing there. And uh, often when, you know, you, you often have this assumption around particular books that you study that you don't get as much enjoyment out of them as you should have because you have to look at it in a purely academic context um, and not actually get the chance to enjoy the book for what it is. Um, but this, uh, rereading this book is actually really lovely and quite appropriate right now in the times where we still can't go out and go traveling worldwide and, and do whatever. It's a, um, it's a story of basically uh, this uh, woman called Lyria, I um, hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, where she basically decides to disappear. She leaves her husband, she buys, she leaves this cos uh, very comfortable cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan life that she has and buys a one-way flight ticket to New Zealand. And from there, she embarks on this hitchhiker's adventure, essentially, uh, going, you know, traveling in strangers' cars, sleeping in, uh, sleeping in fields, forests, and basically goes on a, a journey of, of self-discovery. Um, it seems like a, a story of a different time, in all honesty, given the context of the last 12 months that we've had. Um, but, incredi but incredibly, it, it, it's a road trip story that I found incredibly liberating and incredibly enjoyable because uh, it's just told so well and without looking at it within the eyes of, of an academic, um, it's, been, uh, it's actually been a real joy to actually just enjoy it for the book. And not for any, and not for anything else. Not worrying about uh, uni marks. So that's one book I've been reading, um, which has been a huge amount of fun. Yeah, before you go into your second one, Nick, can I just ask you if that is a common thing for you to reread a book you've read before? Because I always mean to with good books, but there's always so many new ones. I seem to never get around to rereading anything, and I wonder how many people out there actually get around to rereading favourites. It's harder and harder, I think, mm -hmm. as there's more and more books available. Yes, especially in this job, especially in this place <laughs> where we're where we're getting new books dumped on us every second day of the week. Um, but I think for me, the context around mine is I, and, um, and I think I've touched on this in, in previous podcasts, is I'm a notoriously picky reader. If a book doesn't grab me in 50 pages or so, I often put it down and move on to the next thing. Um, and the, what's been drawing me back to old, uh, older books in the past, so, you know, this is a book that I had attempted to read when I was at university and I didn't finish it. And the reason was not because of, you know, anything, I think more because of, I don't know, I've, I've grown up, I've matured a little bit, I've developed that ability to just kind of enjoy and understand the experience that the cat, that um, Elia is going through in the story a bit more. And I just found myself being drawn back to this book. Um, I think it's it, when you are in that kind of place or mentality to actually enjoy a book again, uh, you will naturally find yourself your way back to a book that you may have connected with when you read it the first time and you'll enjoy reading it again. It's a weird experience. It's a weird thing. I don't know. It's, we have so many books around us these days, revisiting old, uh, revisiting books that we really enjoyed is something we don't really get to do very often. Um, yeah, that's what I, I was saying. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think it's something you should do. Um, if a book <laughs> means a lot to you, you should absolutely do it. Um, and the second book um, I've been reading is actually a book that I kind of, it came out late last year and I read it at the time, uh, but I've kind of been revisiting it. Um, and that book is called Truth is Trouble. Um, the Strange Case of Israel Folau or How Speech Became So Complicated. So I mentioned this in a podcast uh, about, I think, near the end of last, uh, near the end of last year. Um, 
And I kind of put it down, forgot about it after I finished reading it, but then I revisited it again because um, I have mentioned in previous podcasts, I do kind of sports journalism occasionally outside of it and revisiting this, this book again, rereading it a second time again. Um, I've some, so, you know, some, it suddenly just clicks in terms of the actual base of discussion that Malcolm Knox is trying to go here, go with here. And I must say, he has to dance a, such a fine line here because we live in a time where the concept of free speech is a cont- continuous discussion. Goalposts are, are continuously being moved around here, there and everywhere. And it is such a fascinating uh, analysis and discussion because often if you, when you talk about this particular debacle of, of the story of Israel Folau, when I went into this book, I went into it with this one perception that he was, you know, I had my own perspectives on the, on the matter. I had my own thoughts on the matter. And I thought that those perspectives weren't going to change. Malcolm asks so many great questions, so many legitimate questions. And in a way with such honest analysis, that's not critical or attacking in any way, but just asking what the potential ramifications are if you choose to take sides and even the entire notion of taking sides. Um, in such a fantastic way. And I feel like even though he, he admitted that even after completing this book, he felt like he barely scratched the surface of the debate. And I think probably that is for the best in terms of this discussion, but it's such a fantastic read and such a fantastic analysis of the world of information that we live in right now and the actual complicated nature of, of the world of free speech that has now emerged as a result of us being in the world of the internet and the age of the internet. It's a difficult topic. It was brave of him to take this on and it's an incredibly interesting book. So highly recommended. Yeah, I remember you talking about this in your best books we read um, a little while back. I think it was November, but um, it's an interesting book and it's been on my radar for a little while. I might pick that up too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks, Nick. Um, I'm assuming that's all the books you've got to talk about. Excellent. Scott, uh, what have you been reading and loving lately? Uh, I think it's funny that we're all saying, oh, yes, we must read that. So it's not just the listeners of the podcast who are getting ideas what to read. We're, we're giving them to each other too. <laughs> it's so um, bad. <laughs> our past <laughs> never gets smaller. <laughs> um, I'm glad, Ash, well, you could contribute with these fantasy novels because it's a genre I don't read very much. So I rely on other people to tell me no. what's good in it. And uh, I'm going more mainstream. Over the holidays, I read, as I'm wont to do, a number of obscure history titles, which I won't bore people <laughs> with. I'm going to talk about two more mainstream novels that are brand new, looking forward, 2021. And uh, the first one actually comes out a week from now. It's her third book uh, and second novel, uh, Alexandra Joel, and it's called uh, The Royal Correspondent, and it's published by HarperCollins. And this is um, like her last her book last year, which was um, The Paris Model. Uh, she ch- makes up a fictional character, a normally young Australian woman, and she puts it in historical... Her, the character in an historical setting, weaving real people from history and retelling um, a period in history and what it was like to live then. And in this case, Blaise Hill is the young uh, woman who grew up um, in a, well, not impoverished, but not very well off uh, family in Enmore in inner city Sydney. And she decides she wants to make something of her life. And it's 1960. And there's not a lot of opportunities for women in 1960 professionally, nurse, teacher, you know, you got paid uh, 
only at the most 75% of what a man got paid. And so, you know, your choices were limited. And she decided she wanted to be a journalist. And she uh, gets a job with a Sydney newspaper as a cadet and a runner. And then finally, she gets to write some stories. But as often happened in that time, she writes stories about fashion and, you know, what dresses and hats and handbags women are wearing, because that's what women were asked to write about then. But then she gets her break and she's asked to go to London to cover the wedding uh, for the paper of Princess Margaret and Tony Armstrong Jones um, and write about it for the social pages uh, and become the royal correspondent for the wedding. So the most of the book uh, then is set in London and Fleet Street and as her career advances and she gets to write or she tries to write about more than uh, the royal social occasions, she's asked to stay on and, and uh, continue to be royal correspondent, but she wants to do real news and be a, a regular journalist. Well, in the in the process, uh, she gets uh, involved in the famous Profumo affair with Christine Keeler and the Assistant Secretary of uh, of war in the in the UK, who was accused of um, well, he was having an affair with Christine Keeler, but there was a spy from the Russian embassy who was also having an affair with Christine Keeler, and was worried that there was pillow talk between the two, and so she gets involved in this spy scandal, which ended up being the downfall of the Harold Macmillan government. So that's the history that goes through it. But you've also got her love life and uh, mystery of, uh, you know, the guy, two guys she's seeing and one she can trust and one she can't, but which one can she trust and what's going to happen? So it's got a bit of a love story. It's got a mystery. It's got politics. It's got a bit of everything, really. It's just a bloody good story. So if you like good storytelling, um, I, I like Alexandra Joles because, as I said, she crosses many genres, whether you want intrigue, history, uh, feminist story, um, politics, you know, it's all there. So we're taking uh, um, pre-orders now, comes out next week, The Royal Correspondent, that was my first one. And my second one is also a new book, and you have to wait a little bit longer for it because it comes out in just over a month. However, on Booktopia, you can pre-order it now and it will come to you <laughs> on the day it's released. And that's Deborah Oswald's The Family Doctor. Now, Deborah Oswald is already um, well known to many, I'm sure. Um, she uh, has written a couple of great novels which were uh, were very funny, but still had gravitas. That's what I, I loved about them, with, with great um, issues about life and relationships. But they made you laugh, just as did her TV series Offspring, which was ran many series, and she uh, co-wrote... Um, you know, you'd laugh out loud too. And she was the queen of that. But this is a real departure for her. She's written a thriller and there's no nothing laugh out loud in it at all. It's a really gripping story about uh, three women who were best friends since childhood, since they were 12, really relied on each other's. Their lives are intertwined as they are with best friends. And right at the beginning of the book, this isn't giving anything away, this is the premise of the book, one of them who had an abusive husband is killed by her husband as are her two children. It's about domestic violence. And how, of course, this tragedy affects her two friends, one of whom the family doctor in the title of the book, Paula, who's a, a doctor in Marrickville uh, family practice. She was, um, her friend had taken refuge with her children at her place and the husband had come from the country and tracked them down and broke into her house and, and killed them. So clearly that debt really affects Paula and uh, their other friend, Anita. And uh, they start talking about, you know, these these men who abuse women and would really the world would be better off without them and as a doctor uh 
she has, uh, Paula has, you know, access to drugs and the ability to perhaps inject something she shouldn't or do something she shouldn't with a patient who might be an abusive uh, man who's, you know, responsible for domestic violence or could kill a woman or children. But just because people shouldn't be on the earth doesn't mean that you should take it in your own hands to think about killing them. And this is what starts running through Paula's mind. I'm not going to spoil it. But what would happen if a suburban doctor decided to take uh, you know, justice into her own hands as far as domestic abuse is concerned. So it's a story of the women's lives. It's a story about, you know, how society deals or doesn't deal with domestic abuse. What can we do about it? But I tell you, you can't put it down once you start it. Good on you, Deborah Oswald. You've found yourself a new genre. I think everyone will be uh, reading this. I think it'll be a great, would make a great movie or TV miniseries. Um, I'm saying that even before the book came out, but I could just see it on the screen. But um, I didn't know how she'd do in this new genre, but it's really, really good. The Family Doctor. He's so good at selling these to us. My TBR pile is now ridiculously long. Yeah, well, that last one sounds great. Well, you've got to remember, I, I owned a bookshop for 20 years. So every day I would, I would, you know, before I joined Booktopia, I had my own bookshop in Sydney's North Shore and I would tell customers every day about the books I liked and why. So it kind of comes naturally to me now. But thank you. <laughs> thank you for saying that I haven't lost the touch if you enjoy that. Um, but yeah, I, I, if, if I can get behind a book and I like it, I really love telling people about it. And these two were great. We are very lucky to have you here with us, Scott. Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you for your absolutely stellar book recommendations, everyone. As I've said before, my TBR pile just got a whole lot bigger. Um, oh, I just love talking about books with you guys. Um, I also love fighting about books with you guys. Um, <laughs> which brings us to Book Fight. Segway! Oh, Segway. wow! <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't really work because I'm not the one fighting with you guys. I'm the ones who were the one who was setting you all off to fight with each other. <laughs> all right, time for book fight. Cue the sound. <laughs> Don't leave that in. <laughs> so it is time for book fight, the weekly book trivia quiz that gets half of us quaking in fear and the other half in trouble with HR for aggressive and unsportsmanlike behaviour. <laughs> or is that just me? <laughs> Kidding. I'm turning over a new leaf this year. I'll be asking some tricky bookish questions and our unlucky contestants will have to battle it out to get the correct answer. Uh, can I please have all of your buzzer words? Nick, oh, uh, Nick, yeah, you're the one on screen. I can see it at the moment. <laughs> okay, um, I will go for truth, please. That will be my buzzword. For the new administration. Oh, God. <laughs> do, you want to, do we want to go down that, do we want to go down that rabbit hole? <laughs> the first question. Ash, what's your buzzword? Uh, I'll go orange. For the cover of your dragon book. Exactly. My dragon book. <laughs> well, given the book I just spoke about, I think I'll go doctor. Doctor. Ooh. Doctor who? Sorry, that was really bad. <clears throat> question one. Which of these former US presidents did not publish an autobiography in their own lifetime? Ulysses S. Grant, Thomas Jefferson, Harry S. Truman, or Theodore Roosevelt? Doctor. Yep. Um, I don't remember <laughs> what the point you said, but no. um, it was the, 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 um, the Ulysses S. Grant. Incorrect. Mm. Oh. Ooh. Orange. I remember it's, which, yes. 
Um, yes. uh, we've, we've got three left. Um, Jefferson. That's correct. Wow. Yes. Good well, go. Ash, off on a strong start. Yes, all oh, four no, of them published autobiographies, but Thomas Jefferson's was published after he died because back then it would apparently have been considered arrogant to have published anything <laughs> about your own life. How times have changed. Yeah. <laughs> Good question. Mm. Thank you. Well, you stole my other question about which, po which presidents have had poets at their inauguration, <laughs> so I had to come up with something better. Question two. In which classic dystopian novel can you find the following quote? One does not establish a dictatorship in order to safeguard a revolution. One makes the revolution in order to establish the dictatorship. Um, Doctor, I'll give it a go. Yep. Hunger oh. Games? No. Is it, is, is it an older book? Is it like it's a, one that is very, very well known. Um, Orange? Ash? Um, I'm going to go, is it like a Brave New World? No. Ruth? Yes. Okay. Is it... No, War and Peace wouldn't classify, would it? No, no it's not War. Sorry, I, that's right. I just it, it, I put two and two together. Can I actually? Truth, can I try again? Let's try something yep. else dystopian. Sure. You're either gonna laugh at me, or I'm just, or I'm gonna get it right. Not, not, no, no, 1984 is not a dystopian, one, is it? No, that one's out as well. No, they're disregarding everything I just said. Can, can we start laughing now? Yeah, you can start laughing now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know my dystopian fiction at all. I'm hopeless on that one. Nick, you're going to be really mad. The answer is 1984 by George Orwell. Oh, what? <laughs> I, I was going to say it sounds well. Can, can I get that? Can I get that point then? Yes. No, because you said, oh, it's not 1984. You didn't, oh, you have to no. Say the words, is it 1984? <laughs> Turning over a new leaf. You're still taking points from me. <laughs> no, the, taking, the turning of a new leaf is regards to me not reacting the way you just did whenever <laughs> Okay, <laughs> oh, well, fair. Okay, damn it. <laughs> Dang it. Right, here's a relatively easy one. Question three. The upcoming Netflix show, Shadow and Bone, is an adaptation of a YA series by which American author? Oh, I thought you guys would get this. Orange. Ash. Um, big guess. Is it Cassandra Clare? No. Oh. Okay. Um, I thought this would be easy. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm remembering her surname and I'm not remembering her first name. Um, oh, Shadow and Bone. Um, is, is the name of the book? Or, the Lee, of the Lee, 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 Lee Bardu, Bard, Barduro? Bardu, so Bardugo, Bardugo. Yes, Scott. That's one for Scott. <laughs> it is Lee Bardugo uh, on the Shadow and Bone. Or the, I think it's called the Grisha Trilogy now. It's changed names, can't remember. Um, but Shadow and Bone will be out in April on Netflix. I'm very excited. Question four. Who am I? I'm a bit worried about this one. <laughs> Scott, I'm relying on you. <laughs> so, Pressure. Who am I? Born on this day, 22nd of January in 1788, I am a British poet of the Romantic period. I attended Harrow School in 1801. And in 1803, I fell in love with and was rejected by my distant cousin, Mary Chaworth. Ruth. Yes. Um, no, he's not romantic. How dare you? Oh, <laughs> no. Doctor. 
Yes. Um, Lord Byron. Oh, well done. Oh, the answer is indeed Lord Byron. Uh, bonus point, um, if you can name one of his most famous works. Um, what were they called? I'm not sure I can. I don't think I can get my bonus point. Um, <laughs> Lord Byron. Um, what was the poem he was most famous for writing? Mm. I'm going to open it up to everyone here. Does anyone know the answer? I only studied Coleridge in school. Oh, well. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, um, the answer I'm looking for is Don Juan. Ah, oh, Don, Don Juan was him. Yes, of course. Yeah. All right. Question five, I promise, is easier. <laughs> uh, Beautiful World, Where Are You? is the title of the upcoming novel by which Truth. Irish author? Yes, no. Sally Rooney. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was just letting Liv finish the question. No. <laughs> no. Three points are off, I'm going to take that. I'm going to retract a point every time Nick interrupts me. Oh. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I won't be that. Mean. Question six is the one that I think might stump someone, might stump you. Okay, so question six. Jonathan Franzen's upcoming novel, uh, to be released in October this year, is called Crossroads, a novel, A Key to All Mythologies, Volume 1. This title has been taken from a classic novel written by George Eliot. Which novel is that? Whoa. Wow. Um, you can just start by naming her most famous books. <laughs> I'm trying to think of George Eliot's titles. Is it like a really, is it, I'm guessing it's a really, really famous one. Yeah. Hmm. Don't Google it. I can hear you typing. Yeah. I have no idea. I've got Ooh. no idea either. <laughs> no. I have no idea. That's a, that's a. You, oh, that's a, George Eliot. Well, maybe it's Middlemarch. Yes, it is. Scott. Oh, you, <laughs> I had not Googled it. I just realised that's the one George Eliot novel I know. <laughs> Technically, you didn't say Doctor, but you know what? I'll give it to you because... Oh, Doctor, sorry. Yeah. And the main <laughs> character's name's Dorothy, so maybe I get a... Yeah, Dorothea. Um, it's the name of a book that Dorothea's husband um, is writing on throughout the novel. And I, hmm. the fact that Jonathan Franzen named his upcoming novel after that is the most Jonathan Franzen-esque thing I can think of. Oh. All right. Question seven is easy, I promise. <laughs> Question seven, what is the name of the first book in the Bridgerton series by Julia Quinn? Orange. Yes, Ash. Uh, the Duke and I. Well done. Yes. Ooh. We are coming up to the last question um, and the scoreboard is as follows. Nick is on one point, followed by Ash on two points and Scott is out in front with three points. I've never led this quiz before. It's a new <laughs> year, a new start. I've never not been last before, so it is a new year, Scott. <laughs> this is a growth moment for Nick. Okay. Wow. <laughs> you said you were maturing, Nick. Wow. <laughs> you did. All right, question eight. Which play by the American writer Tennessee Williams contains characters named Big Daddy and Big Mama? Doctor. Scott. K. 
cat on a hot tin roof? You are correct. It is cat on a hot tin yeah. roof. Which means nice. that first, the second round of book quiz this year goes to Scott. Yay, what Yay. do I win? You win the respect of our listeners. I'll office. enjoy that. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> done. So well Thanks, done, Liv. Scott. Thank you, um, thank you. <laughs> uh, so that's all we have time for this week. Uh, thank you to Ash, Nick and Scott for joining me today on the Weekend Booktopian. And thank you to all of our wonderful listeners who tune in week after week. Uh, the Weekend Booktopian is produced by Nick Vasiliev, and you can find more episodes of this show, as well as other fun podcasts, on our SoundCloud and Apple Podcast channels. Um, and you can find all the books on our website. Of course. And you can also find more book, fun bookish content on our blog, The Booktopian, which is edited by yours truly. And our posts this week include a review of the new children's fantasy novel, Amari and the Night Brothers by B.B. Alston, and a list, a list of the best cookbooks for pie, because pie not. Thanks for listening and never stop reading. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.